Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with Mike Caden, co-founder and CEO of Red Circle, a hosting platform for podcasts and a Refinery Ventures Fund 2 portfolio company. Mike has very interesting career, super smart guy, went to Brown University with a degree in electrical engineering, got his teacher certification, he's also a musician, so he spent some time teaching, got into development, joined Uber, was part of the earliest uh, development teams at Uber starting in 2013, where he met his co-founder, Jeremy Lamit. They went on to start Red Circle. My biggest theme or so what in this conversation that I'd love you to hear about is his experience at Uber and what it meant to build fast and hire people at that kind of pace. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Caden. All right. Welcome, Mike, to Fast Frontiers. So happy to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you as part of the refinery team. It's it's so funny. Um, I tell people the story of how we connected. You having recently, you and your wife recently moved to Cincinnati, and I get a I get a call from our co investors from Nick at Epic VC saying, "Hey, do you know about this company Red Circle in Cincinnati?" And I was like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, my job was to know everything about Cincinnati at a minimum, right? So yeah, well, I think I had been in Cincinnati for you know four weeks at the time, so you, you get a you get a pass. I get a pass. All right, yeah, for, for not weeks, knowing I was there yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. So uh, really look forward to sharing your background and and your co-founder Jeremy's background and some of the journey that led you to creating Red Circle. So I was thinking maybe we we kind of start there and give folks uh, some of that background, how that's informed you as a as a founder and then and as a CEO, and then um, then maybe talk about the podcasting market and space specifically as a as a next frontier of of media. So yeah, sounds um, great. Yeah. So first off, a little bit about your background leading up to and and, and at Uber and when you and Jeremy met. I started, uh, well, even before Uber, uh, I had worked at some nonprofits and I was a high school teacher. So Uber was uh, the first real sort of uh, for-profit business that I had uh, the, the, the luck of, of joining. And I started at Uber in 2013 when, you know, there was some maybe 250 people or so, maybe a little bit less. Uh, and the engineering group was 40 or 50 and we all fit in, in one, one room in San Francisco, which I remember really well. Um, and... Yeah, I started there, you know, right about at the, the, the like hyper growth phase for Uber, Uber. You know, there was a ton of venture capital behind the business at the time. And we grew the, you know, size of the employee base from 250 or so. And I started in 2013 to, gosh, I don't know, tens of thousands by the time I left, uh, you know, five years later. And I sort of got as a result the ultimate. Uh, crash course in 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 growing teams and scaling technology and scaling up products. Uh, just got super lucky to have uh, found a spot there. The, the reason I got the job actually is because I sang a cappella with someone who was in the HR department. Um, don't know if I would have even gotten gotten the gig otherwise. Oh, that's the reason. Okay, you've been holding out. I didn't know that. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just I don't always <laughs> uh, fly my a cappella flag that high, but I, I figured uh, here on a podcast is the best place to do it. But yeah, you know, I sort of, I got the job there. The, the other funny story about getting the job there is um, during my interview, uh, I got asked a question that I was familiar with from another podcast, which is uh, a radio show called Car Talk. I don't know if you've seen Car Talk or listened to Car Talk, but they talk about, yeah. you know, automobile repair. And every week they have a puzzler, which is like kind of a brain teaser. 
And they asked me a question in the interview that I knew from a car talk puzzler. Uh, and I just pretended that I didn't know the answer. And I sort of like worked it out on the whiteboard over 30 minutes. And, and finally, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, so my hire was under somewhat false pretenses as well. Anyway, you know, I was there uh, as a frontline software engineer in a job I probably didn't deserve if it wasn't for that puzzler. And really within six months, they sort of, you know, looked me in the eyes and they said, you're, you know, you're a fine engineer, but you should be a manager um, and sort of push me into doing that, whether I wanted it or not. It was more that I was in a place where the the organization was scaling so rapidly that they just needed people to take on responsibility. And um, I worked on Uber for Business, which is their business product in the beginning. I was part of the core team that founded that product and then um, got handed the scope of Uber's communications platform. So worked on all of Uber's technology for email and SMS and push notifications, the phone calls between you and the driver where they can't see your number and you can't see theirs. I also worked on various other uh, sort of marketing stuff like uber.com and also worked on internationalization and localization across the company and all the engineering infrastructure there. So a really diverse set of different projects that, you know, in the beginning was uh, my team was uh, three people with uh, that scope. Uh, and by the time we left was, a you know, depending on when you looked at us of maybe 40 or 50 person organization uh, of product people and designers and engineers, you know, in just a short four years, um, you know, went from, you know, the, uh, one of the code monkeys on the line to um, to to you know working on a pretty large organization. Not necessarily because I'm so great, um, but because I was just in the right place when Uber was going through that stuff. I I had to be able to swim uh, as the water rose uh, and, and did my best to do so. What are some of the takeaways? As as you know, I think our listeners know, you know a big focus of ours at Refinery is growth, and specifically that there's there there are. Um, experiences or patterns and uh, that are specific to a high growth company that may not exist in a company that's not experiencing high growth. What are some of the, those experiences that you took away from that? Yeah, excellent question. I mean, it, there are some things that Uber got, you know, very wrong. You can go read about them in the New York times from 2017. There are some things that Uber got extremely right. Um, you know, the, the speed at which the business was growing uh, required the engineering team to keep up. And in the beginning, um, you know, when you really quickly transition from, you know, a startup trying to get things done to a startup trying to, you know, prepare this thing to scale from, you know, a thousand trips to, to tens of millions of trips, uh, you know, you really have to uh, put in a lot of energy and, and sweat, really, to keep the thing up that people don't realize uh, the amount of energy that went in just from humans with hands on keyboards to keep that thing alive on a Friday or Saturday night when we hit our, our peak traffic. And when you are in an environment where, where every Saturday night is the biggest night you've ever had, uh, there's only, uh, there's sort of a certain team camaraderie that comes alive uh, in a situation like that, where everybody is sharing a common goal towards uh, supporting the business and growing this thing, and then making sure that you know people don't end up stranded at 1.30 in the morning at the, at the airport when they're counting on you, or that the tens of thousands and eventually millions of drivers who are depending on our engineering team for their livelihoods could count on us. Um, and meanwhile, we were you know, duct taping together a bunch of startup code that was barely keeping up. And so, you know, there's when you are facing problems like that, there's a certain cultural element where people really come together to take on tremendous challenge and can accomplish a lot more than they might think they'd be able to do uh, when everybody's got that shared vision and that shared goal. You know, Uber did a really good job in the beginning. 
uh, of having folks sort of, um, you know, really, really aligned on the business goals from the start, really, really aligned on what we were doing um, from the start. And, you know, when I was up at, you know, two in the morning because something was broken on a Saturday night, it didn't necessarily feel like some massive burden to my um, work-life balance, although it definitely was. Uh, but uh, but it felt like my duty and something that I was doing, you know, for the good of, of the people around us. So there's just something that happens, I think, when you're in these growth environments, when you hit what in the case of Uber, I think is some of the most like amazing product market fit that exists. And the team rallies around that to be a part of that and to uh, achieve not just the business growth, but also sort of the uh, stepping up to the technical challenge of, uh, you know, rebuilding the engines on an airplane while it's, while it's flying. Yeah. So it sounds like what you describe is the, um, that there was a tremendous amount of market pull happening. It wasn't like you were having to work hard to make that happen. It was more of trying to keep up with it. Is that accurate? Especially on the engineering side. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, uh, we were responsible for sending out the text messages uh, for verifying your phone number when you sign up or the receipt that you would get after or the password reset if you forgot your password. And, you know, those things were critical for the fundamental operation of the business, not necessarily its growth. And so for us, it was like, gosh, we got to figure out how to get a text message delivered in Azerbaijan, or we've got to figure out how we're going to, um, you know, if we're in the situation where the email vendor goes down, where we're not down for three hours. So a lot of uh, engineering problems that were associated with um, supporting the business's growth because, um, you know, in reality, uh, that marketplace flywheel was spinning, you know, pretty hard even by the time I got there and there was two. Yeah. What, how often were you or how far out were you planning? Like, it sounds like you're pl- it was, it was week to week. You know, what was your, was there, did you ever have the luxury of thinking what's going to happen a year from now or six months from now? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe towards the end, uh, we started to have a little bit of, uh, you know, formalization of our product planning process. But um, for the first two or three years, we were really going um, when, and using our intuition and using our um, whatever telemetry we could have to make the best decisions we could make that were sitting in front of us at the time. Uh, you know, no business ever has software engineers falling out of their pockets where they where that's not the resource constraint. So, um, you know, even the, the biggest and fastest growing ones. Um, but uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you still have to like be really thoughtful about how you're using the couple of people that you have, even while we're hiring and bringing on people all the time. You know, I started that team, it was three people. We had all the scope that I described before, you know, we got up to 40. So a lot of time was spent hiring, obviously, you know, even then when there was just three of us, there was a, you know, we had to be extremely thorough about what we paid the most attention to because there was no way to fix everything that was broken all the time. What did you learn about hiring in that process? A ton. So uh, Uber, Uber did um, uh, the Amazon thing called Bar Raisers, where you know there was somebody uh, from another team on every interview loop that was there, not necessarily um, to quote unquote raise the bar, even though it was called that, but to sort of be an accountability mechanism between teams because Uber's like hiring mandate was very strong. You know, it would be easy to just sort of hire up sort of lower quality talent and let managers build up big organizations and use that as a way to get promoted instead of actually hiring great, great people. Um, and so there was a sort of accountability mechanism. And I participated in that program. And so in addition to hiring for my own team, I was also doing, you know, two or three interviews per week for other teams. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I've done, you know, 500, maybe more interviews during my time there. Uh, and so I l- learned a ton about hiring, got to see the people we hired and who was successful and who wasn't. 
um, you know, what things we should be looking for and what we shouldn't. Um, and so I, I learned a ton and I'll tell you a couple lessons that are really important to me from, from that time. First of all, I don't buy into the Silicon Valley software engineering ethos of, uh, like a hazing style interview that has brain teasers and, uh, high pressure tactics. Um, you know, there are occasional firefights and maybe at Uber a little bit more than, than, than others, but, um, the fact is most of the time, uh, in the case of software engineering, and I suppose this is true in other functions too, you're sitting there doing your work with your hands on your keyboard in a relaxed and comfortable environment. And what we want to simulate as much as we can in an interview process is what's it going to be like to work with this person in a real environment? Uh, how are they going to collaborate? How are they going to be able to perform when they are relaxed and using their full brain instead of just having 50% of their, uh, their capacity of their CPU uh, overwhelmed with the anxiety of the interview itself? Um, and so, you know, I tend to ask interview questions that are not that challenging, um, but there's always extensions that make it so that the person can never succeed. So I have a set of interview questions where it starts easy and it gets harder and it gets harder and it gets harder and you're never going to get it. I've never gotten the last question. So uh, it's more of a conversation that that goes on. But you start with something easy and you build confidence on the other end of the interview table uh, until the person is sort of able to really show you who they are and you make it fun, you make it personable, and you're going to learn a lot more about who's on the other side of that. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I think interviews are, are extremely blunt instrument and really rough uh, as a way to measure people. It's the only tool we have, I guess, but um, but it's pretty rough. Uh, and so we still believed in, and I still believe in to this day, having people either write code or do code reviews as a software engineer um, as a part of the interview uh, without somebody breathing down their neck, you know, something in their natural state, you know, a short project where you go out and build stuff by yourself. Um, the last thing that I'll say uh, is that I learned really early on um, that you know hiring is a business process, right? You're, you're, it's, there's a transaction happening here, but in the end of the day, uh, I can't treat hiring decisions uh, in a in a fully cold and business oriented way. It's a human decision who you bring onto your team, um, and uh, and you have to take that really seriously. I hired someone who I had a feeling was not the right fit, but the team was excited about. And I don't want the lesson to be like managers should go against their team. But I, I, I sort of had a strong feeling that this was not the right fit. Um, but the team was excited about the candidate. I brought them on. And, and within a few weeks, it was quite obvious they were not ready to, um, to be there. Um, and, you know, I had used, done the calculus in my head. It's like, all right, I, you know, the team wants to hire this person. I don't. If I'm going to hire them, I need to be okay with letting them go in three months if I'm right. And, you know, at the time that calculus was like, all right, that's like, that's a business decision that I can, that I can be okay with. Um, but that person who was a new college grad, you know, started off their career with a really rough spot when I had to let them go not that long after. Uh, and that's going to have like long-term impact on their career. Uh, and, you know, maybe it was a fine move for the business to take that risk. But in the end of the day, part of hiring is a, is a human decision. And, and you have to think about the people on the other ends of these calls as well. Um, so to this day, you know, uh, there's the whole, uh, the idea of, um, uh, you know, comes out of Netflix, I think that like, we're not a, a, a family, we're a team. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I subscribe to that idea, but only to a point. I think in the end of the day, you know, these folks are not your family uh, if you're a team leader, but they are real humans that you got to treat that way. They're not just resources to be allocated. Absolutely. And you are on a journey together, right. a life journey together where... Hopefully people are 
transformed in some way or improved through that process, right? And learn. Yeah. You know, and that person who I mentioned, they came out okay. They found another job somewhere. And people that I've let go or not hired along the way who've been frustrated at that time, you know, I check back in to see, you know, Mm -hmm. is this person on the street? And there never are, right? Uh, Everybody's on a journey of their own and they're going to find the right way to get where they're trying to go. Some great learnings. Um, The the bar raisers I actually hadn't heard. So I like that. That's a very good uh, technique. So uh, tell us about when you and Jeremy met. Yeah, so Jeremy is a Lermit is my co-founder at Red Circle, um, and Jeremy was uh, on Uber's marketing team. He started uh, as an on-the-ground uh, marketer in the New York City office, and was part of that real sort of early Uber sort of hustle culture, and um, made his way eventually to San Francisco to be a part of the marketing team. And again, my team uh, on the engineering side was responsible for email and SMS and all these different marketing channels. And so his team was uh, consistently asking for stuff from my team and me being an engineer trying to keep the lights on uh, and an arrogant person, uh, you know, mostly (laughs) thought they didn't know what they were talking about and wasn't really doing a lot to support what they were asking for and, and started actually building a bunch of stuff that wasn't what they needed. Um, and as a result, Jeremy and I like really didn't get along. He was trying to get stuff from me. I was saying, no, there was a lot of tension there for a long time. And the business uh, really understood uh, that, you know, our team had some really good ideas. The marketing team needed more technical support um, and that something was missing in the organization uh, for us to, uh, to be able to push marketing forward and use all of Uber's technology skills and what we built to be able to like drive our marketing program forward. And some smart people, you know, put together a bunch of folks to try to figure this out. And eventually the result of that project was, you know, they stuck Jeremy, this guy who I didn't really get along with on my team as my product manager, which I didn't have. I thought product managers were stupid. And I can tell you they're not. Um, and uh, and that's how it started. It started. They shoved us on a team together, and we didn't really get along. And over the course of a couple of years, we really came to respect each other's views, and our ability to disagree was really strong. And you know, it was a big part of building out this communications platform team that that we ended up building out to a much larger size, um, and built a bunch of really cool products uh, along the way. Uh, and so, when I left Uber, Uber a couple of years later, and started looking around for new jobs. Um, I decided I didn't want to do any of those. I wanted to start Red Circle instead. And, um, you know, Jeremy and I had lunch. And by the time we were done doing that, we were doing it together. And I'm glad because at the time, I was kind of lonely trying to decide if I was going to do this crazy thing. Um, And, you know, at least there was one other person that was willing to be uh, as crazy as me. So were there some shared lessons between you and Jeremy that you said, hey, these these are things we want to make sure we do, that we learn from our Uber experience. And these are some of the things that we don't want to do or you know, mistakes that you don't want to repeat. You know, what we built at Red Circle is a is a podcast platform for podcasters that uh, distribute their content and stuff, and then also for advertisers to be able to buy ad space on those podcasts. And so the advertising side of what we do is, is not all that different from a lot of the marketing tools that we built for marketers. Um, and one of the cool things that we learned um, at Uber is that, you know, when we originally built a bunch of tools for marketers... Um, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time investing in the user experience of those tools because we're like, all right, there's maybe a thousand marketers at Uber spread around the globe. You know, this is not a core customer that we need to spend a lot of time making sure their job is easy or that the web app looks pretty or, or things like that. Um, we just figured that, you know, that we should prioritize instead um, its functionality versus its usability um, because the, the, the customers were internal. Um, and that was a bad idea. The customers didn't like it. 
Um, they decided, you know, those weren't the uh, the right options for them. Uh, you know, there were other third party services that were using before, and we were trying to force them to start using our stuff, and it wasn't going well because it wasn't a pleasure to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what was the really fundamental thing for me to learn as a software engineer? I'm used to like, you know, I'll just type into a into a command line interface. I don't need anything that looks good or is really that easy to use uh, to find value in it. I think typical customers. Um, and especially marketers who are technical, but also kind of have a more artistic and creative side to their work. Um, they need to have products that, um, that don't just do good, but, but feel good and can show them, um, you know, you need to be able to show them the value, not just through its functionality, but through its usability. And so for us on the advertising side of our business, you can look around in the, in the, in the marketing, uh, in the MarTech world or the ad tech world. And there's a lot of like really bad UIs that sure, there's very powerful functionality on the other side of that. Uh, but instead, what we decided to do is really focus in on making the advertising side of our platform just as usable and amazing as the consumer side of our, pro- of our uh, platform, which is oriented towards podcasters. Um, and it's been great. You know, advertisers, when we demo the thing, are like, wow, this is awesome. I really understand it. And I can, it, so it's, it's, it's got a lot of value just up front. And then it's got a lot of value um, when advertisers put their hands on it as well. Um, some things that we won't do, um, you know, so at, at Uber, there were a bunch of cultural challenges. The, the company um, scaled extremely fast. And as a result, I think what we did was we hired a bunch of people who came and, and represented a kind of cultural index fund for Silicon Valley. Uh, that's the way I like to think about it. People came from Google or Amazon or Facebook um, and they showed up there and they brought the pieces of their culture that they wanted to bring. Mm-hmm. And when you end up with just a big hodgepodge of different cultural stuff, um, you're going to end up in a place where there is no like well-formed culture or where the culture takes a turn that you're not intentionally building. Um, and in the case of Uber, you know, you can read about some of the negative stuff that, you know, there, there's also, you know, something really important that needs to be done early in a company to set the right moral foundation for the work that's happening as well. So one of the things we did way earlier than I think other startups do is define a set of cultural values for the company that we have, you know, built together and have on paper and everybody knows. And when we do performance reviews, they're built into it, which Uber didn't have, you can believe it, until 2016 when the company had thousands and thousands of people and was doing probably billions in revenue uh, or in GMV. So, you know, really uh, learned a strong lesson that if you want to build a culture of uh, that's powerful and an asset for your business, you have to spend a lot of time being really intentional about what you, what you do to build that versus just letting the people who show up bring whatever they want uh, and, and, and sort of take the culture from you. So we've been really thoughtful about that. How have, do you have any examples of any of those values that you established that were put to the test so far early on the first few years? Yeah. I mean, the, the first two values that we have are sort of in conflict on purpose. Um, the first one is called be real. Uh, and this goes to that sort of, uh, you know, not a family, not a team, but somewhere in between idea where, um, you know, we want people to, um, to have a work personality that's, if not exactly the same, very similar to their, their home or friend personality. We want people to be real at work. Uh, not necessarily, you know, tell us everything about what's happening in your life. It's fine if you want to do that, but that you don't have like some separate way you talk at work or behave at work. That isn't the real you. Um, and we feel like uh, that's important. It's this like bring your whole self to work idea. Uh, on the other hand, you know, what comes with that is that people need to be honest um, and be direct sometimes, right? And Uber was famous for very confrontational culture. Um, you know, one of their values when they eventually established them was called 
toe stepping um, or and principled confrontation. These are some of the values. Um, you know, that's a little strong. Uh, I think be real is a little bit better. It's like, okay, bring yourself to work. And, you know, if you have something that you believe or something that you disagree with someone about, let's not beat around the bush and do politics. Let's be direct and be real with people. Um, on the other hand, uh, the second value that we established right after that is called be respectful. And, and that is, um, doesn't mean you have to be everybody's best friend, but if uh, people don't have enough psychological safety uh, and expectations of respect from their peers, uh, then it becomes really hard to be real with each other. And so these things we establish early and, you know, it's hard. We ask people to give direct feedback to their peers. We ask people to, um, to receive really hard feedback. We ask people to, um, you know, who are used to from working at other places, uh, putting a corporate veneer over themselves where they, mm. um, you know, they're talking about circle back and, you know, all these kind of like <laughs> jargon and, and, and nonsense. Whereas I'm, you know, cursing every three words and, and, and being myself. Um, you know, I think sometimes it takes a lot for people to adjust to that. And some people, they never do. And, and, and if that's not the right fit for the culture, then, then there's some other place that might be a better fit for them as well. That's a great example. The uh, size of the team so far is, uh, I'm trying to remember now how many we have. Just under 30. Have you seen that, you know, some folks work at certain stages, you know, the company, they, they, they're a good fit for when you're under 10 people, when you're 30, when you're 300? I don't know about 300 yet, but uh, but we're on our way. Um, uh, what I would say is um, there are there are people who are zero to one people for sure, and there mm-hmm. are people who are um, who are more process oriented and more um, uh, you know more willing to get into weeds that the original builders don't care about and don't want to care about. Um, and I think that's supernatural. And I can tell from myself, I've had to really change what I value in the work uh, over time as well. It was a right. lot more fun when I was spending, you know, 70% of my time with my hands on my keyboard, writing code, building this thing from the beginning. Um, nowadays, when I sit down with a financial model or, I, um, or I'm designing a performance review questionnaire, you know, these things are extremely valuable, but far less, um, far less easy to get any immediate feedback and any kind of quick, quick, uh, quick wins and help you feel good about the work you're doing every day. And so if you take that and generalize it to employees, some folks, especially more senior folks are used to that, that long feedback cycle and, uh, and the ability to kind of build something over six months or 12 months and feel good about it. Whereas I think some of the early builders at the company were way more excited to like ship a feature today and watch that graph go up today and do that every day uh, until the graph is, is 100x where it was before. Well, it seems like the important part of that story is that you're you're growing as well. You're not expecting others to grow with the business. You're you're having to stretch yourself and do some maybe the work that you wouldn't normally want to do or, or consider yourself good at, but you've had to do it and will continue to have to do it if you want to keep growing. I mean, a hundred percent. The the skills required for this job are so different after four years than they were when I started. And I'm sure they'll be super different in four years from now. Again, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the scale of what you're, uh, you know, the control planes that you're controlling and the telemetry that you're looking at is all extremely different. Um, in the beginning when you're just trying to get, you know, a couple percent of the right graphs each week, 
uh, it's a lot easier to um, to sort of uh, you know steer a speedboat. Um, but now that we're kind of like I don't know maybe a luxury yacht, we're not a super yacht or a, or, a, or an ocean liner yet, but we're big enough where like it don't turn on a dime. Um, you know, you really have to change your approach and change your way of thinking. And you know, it was really interesting you just said that I, I work with a CEO coach, which is I really encourage people to do. And you know, he really helped me realize at one point um, that. Uh, that I had been doing so much stuff that I don't like doing, um, you know, whether it's uh, financial operations or, um, you know, uh, or, or spending a ton of time on, uh, on, uh, stuff that's non-technical. I've been, I've been an ad, I've become an advertising sales leader, which I never thought I would be. Um, and some of it I ended up really enjoying, some of it not so much. Um, but as a CEO of the company uh, that's fast growing uh, and that uh, you have to steer slowly, uh, you know, even while it's moving fast, uh, you have to step up and take on things that you might not like. Uh, and But you've got to be able to grow and adapt and take those on either way. Well, you're doing a great job. So, so let's talk about the industry you're in and the podcast industry as a, as, a, as a fast frontier, as a new frontier in media. Like, What attracted you to it and what are some of the dynamics that you're that you're witnessing today? Yeah. I mean, what attracted me to it is that uh, I'm just an auditory learner. I remember being like 11 years old and getting my hands on a bunch of books on tape that my parents had in the bookshelf and understanding what those were and, you know, putting a Sony Walkman like under my pillow and I was going to sleep and playing, you know, some James Mishner novel, you know, from the very early ages, Mm -hmm. I knew I enjoyed being talked to, to learn. And so I've been a podcast listener for forever. Um, and uh, when I quit at Uber, I was really thinking about what I was going to work on next. And, you know, I don't necessarily think Uber is a fundamental bad for the world, but I'm also not convinced it's a fundamental good. And uh, I really wanted to be sure that I could be proud of saying the next thing that I built was going to be something that really, um, you know, I, I could be proud to say I was working on. And so I went and started looking around and I got some job offers at some standard places. I got some not job offers at some places I would have liked. And um, I uh, I really got inspired by some companies in what today uh, you would call like the creator space. Um, then that wasn't even a, a term then really. Um, and I really got inspired and that's kind of what Put things together. I've been a podcast listener for forever. I've been inspired by these creator-oriented companies. I started building a podcast platform that, um, you know, that was really a way for me to write some code before I went and did a bunch of interviews because I hadn't done a lot of that as a manager in a while. And eventually, it just went from the back burner to the front, and I became increasingly obsessed. And I found myself up at two in the morning, you know, reading a, a trade journals podcasting and trying to understand customers and what they needed. And, and that's sort of how the company was born, why I chose it. Um, I'm not a podcaster myself. I'm a musician and a creator in other forms, but um, uh, I'm a podcast listener and just a podcast obsessed person. Um, so that's kind of how I chose it. Um, I wasn't super intentionally choosing the market out of some you know, recognition that this was some some great place to 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 put my, to build a a business. I wasn't that smart yet. Uh, I was just really interested in podcasting, and you know, had just had this crazy run at Uber. I wanted to get back to building. Um, uh, it turns out though that I chose something pretty awesome back then. You know, the total uh, advertising spend in the podcasting space was something like three hundred million, and uh, last year is one point four billion. It's only been four years. 
Um, the speed and growth of this market is uh, is incredible. And during the course of that time, you know, listenership has continued to increase to the point where now 41% of American adults are listening to a podcast every month. And, you know, we still have a ways to go. The radio is, you know, somewhere between 80 and 90 still. So there's, there's, there's definitely a lot more um, engagement for, uh, for Americans to have with this medium. But in 2013, 2014, it was 13%, 14% was the thing for nerds. Um, and now it's a hundred percent sort of mainstream medium. And so, um, you know, again, I didn't choose the market because of, uh, the momentum, but, uh, but luckily, you know, chose, chose wisely. Um, well, with yeah, yeah. the integration of technology and cars, um, I would expect that podcast listing and cars, well, I know, you know, that's going up as well. Right. So that, that potentially starts moving radio out of the way because it's asynchronous nature. Choose whatever you want. I know every road trip we we binge on podcasts. Yeah, I can't tell you the last time I listened to the regular radio, and I think that's probably true of a lot of millennial folks like me. Um, but yeah, whether it's the car um, or the AirPods in your ears while you're doing the dishes or taking the trash out or when you're at the gym or wherever, um, people are finding more places within their life to interact with on-demand audio. And I love music. Like I said, I'm a musician, but sometimes I want to listen to music and sometimes I want to learn something uh, or be informed. And, uh, and that's where podcasting is just continuing to grow. Let's talk about how you were helping the podcasters, you know, how, and maybe some stories of how their, their business, you know, as, as podcasters has changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the the realization I had when I started to investigate the market um, was that uh, most of the ad deals that get done in podcasting to this day, despite the fact that podcasting is a technological form of distribution, they're really just done with emails and spreadsheets and checks in the mail. You know, I got a check in the mail yesterday that I had to deposit for an ad that we ran. And um I mean, it's just insane. It's mm -hmm. 2022. Uh, podcasting is a digital medium from the start. The fact that these deals are all coordinated uh, in the style of radio, um, you know, just creates so much friction and complexity to getting an advertising deal done that as a result, most of the deals are done on the largest podcasts to make the management of those campaigns feasible for those that have to do it, right? You'd much rather buy, if you're the marketer working on this, you'd much rather buy on one large podcast than on 50 small ones um, because you're going to be the one coordinating all those deals, right? And so as a result, you know, most of the money in podcasting is going to the top 500 or top 1,000 podcasts, but there are 4 million out there. There's half a million monthly active. Um, so there's just tons of people out there creating content many of which would like to grow and monetize, um, but just don't have access to that. So our business is about helping make sure that it's not just Joe Rogan or the New York Times or whoever that's up at the top there who's making money from this, from this uh, expansion in consumer habits. Um, and so what we do is we help podcasters to get matched up with advertising deals. And rather than using emails and spreadsheets, we have a fully automated and very complex workflow software that makes everything really simple for the podcaster where they just, they get a deal, they click yes, they record an ad and they're done. Um, or uh, extremely powerful on the advertiser side where they can pick and choose the right podcast that they want to deploy on. They can measure and understand their spend and they can deploy a podcast advertising campaign to 100 plus podcasts in five minutes just by clicking on which ones they want. So that's what we built. And, you know, it's really a Robin Hood play. It's uh, make sure that the money goes to the people and not just to the people at the top. Um, and, uh, and so far, so good. The, the other insight that we didn't know when we started the business, but that we've learned as we've gathered more data is that more than half the listening is happening 
uh, down in what we call the fat torso of the market. It's not the head. It's not the long tail. Uh, it's the it's the big middle, like the one I have, and uh, it's uh, it's 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 where most of the listening is happening, um, and where a lot of podcasts we believe are underserved. And last thing I'll say is what you said before. There's uh, podcasters that um, that use our platform that you know depend on this as their livelihood. Maybe it's part of a um, collection of internet creator stuff that they do to. Um, to get paid, maybe we pay them out, you know, ten or twenty thousand dollars a year, and it's part of their collection of different revenue sources that they have by being an internet creator. Um, but we are really proud to be doing the work uh, to make that possible for them, so that their art can be something that they live off. You know, if you have ten thousand, twenty thousand people listening to your podcast, you could, you know, twenty thousand people—that's how many people fit in in the Oracle Arena where the Warriors play. Um, we have folks on the platform who have twenty thousand people listening to their podcast every week who barely made any money off it before they came to us. Um, and so just thinking about the disparity between those two things, how much commerce is happening inside Oracle Arena versus uh, you know the, somebody showing up every week to literally have you whisper into their ear, um, you know that's got to be something that has value and we're really happy to help those podcasters unlock it. That's great. So what should, if anybody here listening is a, is a podcaster, what, what do you want them to know? What, what should they be thinking about and how should they think about Red Circle? Yeah, look, there's a million places where you can that you can use to distribute your podcast to Apple and Spotify and everywhere else, and they all have affordances and they all have constraints. Um, you know, frankly speaking, that market is somewhat commoditized. There's a million places where you can do it, and it's not a very complicated technical problem. I was done with that in six weeks once we started the business, uh, before we even started the business. Um, so you can choose any one of those you want. Everyone has its own affordances, and here's what ours are. So we focus on growth and monetization. You know, um, if you're uh, a VC, that sounds and you're complicated, to this, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you're a, if you're a VC and you're primarily interested in in uh, in just distributing your podcast and you don't want advertising, then we're probably not the the platform for you. If you are a creator who's looking to make real money on the work um, and not pull your hair out while doing it, um, let me pull my hair out instead. I probably lost half my hair on my head over the course of building this business, but um, we'll, we take care of that in a in a. Um, in a fully automated fashion for you. So that's the reason you'd want to choose us. If you're interested in growing your audience, uh, for which we have some amazing cross-promotion tools, or if you're interested in uh, in monetizing through advertising or through listener payments, uh, our software uh, can really help you pull that off. Uh, whether you have 500 people listening or or you know a million, we have some podcasts that are up at, at that size as well. Terrific. And um, what what's your view of Kind of the future of podcasts. What's what? What do we have to look forward to over the next five years? Yeah, I mean, the podcast market is uh, very fragmented on the listener side, right? You can listen on Apple, you can listen on Spotify, you can listen on a cornucopia of smaller and more interesting apps, and uh, even Amazon entering the space, Google entering the space. There's talk of YouTube getting more active and sort of trying to treat podcasting as a first class thing. Um, and so we, as an independent company that relies on the open nature of podcasting's distribution, which I'll skip the technical details of, but you know, podcasting is amazing and that anybody can create one and anybody can get it into these listening apps, you know, very easily. Um, you know, we are excited about a future where there is more and more innovation and competition in the listening app. Um, between different businesses. Apple has had a sort of monopoly on that for a long time. Spotify has come and challenged it, but is still the underdog. Um, but there are other larger tech companies and tons of independent apps that are coming and making that experience more dynamic and more um, 
and then and there's more competition, which we think is great for consumers. So I anticipate more things will come there, whether it's more video, more transcripts, more uh, social interactivity, um, more ability to share. You know, those things I think are going to be amazing. Um, for uh, listeners and really help to improve the experience of, of listening to podcasts. And what that does is great for the ecosystem for companies like ours, because it keeps podcasting open and it enables innovation to happen. Uh, for a long time, there hasn't been a lot moving forward in podcasting. And that's really because it was just Apple running most of the show. Um, yeah, no, I, I love that. Love to be able to dig deeper in some podcasts when I'm listening. Not always, but sometimes you you want to explore more and not... not too far afield. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. Yeah. And a transcript that kind of is intelligent and can start to help you understand what the content means and how it can be linked to the rest of the world, you know, can really start to open some doors. Then on the back end for companies like us, um, you know, we are less interested in the actual listener experience and more in what we can do for podcasters. And I think as that ecosystem evolves, um, we're going to be wanting to think about all the different ways that we can help podcasters make money from their work and, and grow their audience. Uh, and so there's lots of other places to go just besides advertising. We already do listener payments. There's a, a group that's trying to figure out how crypto fits into all of it. There's merchandise. There's live events. There's lots of ways podcasters can grow, and there's lots of ways that they can earn, and we want to be at the forefront of, of making that happen. Perfect summary. If you're a podcaster and you want to make more money, talk to Mike. Sure. <laughs> yeah, send me a note. <laughs> Mike, thanks for being on Fast Frontiers. This was a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of your of what you shared and your experiences. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. Join us next time when we bring you my conversation with Bernadette Butler, CEO and co-founder of StoryTap in Vancouver, Canada. StoryTap is a video platform that helps brands give their customers and employees a voice by sharing video stories to increase brand engagement, conversions, and retention. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis, audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, and our podcast platform is Casted.